Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Amen. The book of Psalms is a portal to worship. And this particular psalm, I have every reason to believe David wrote it. There's good evidence to support that. It begins with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The Bible gives a sharp division in this psalm between two kinds of people. Godly people and ungodly people. I know you're used to me saying there's two kinds of people in the world. Italian people and people who wish they were. But there really are two kinds of people. Godly and ungodly. But if I were to add another category to that, there's two kinds of people. Those who have hope. Maybe you count yourself among one of those people and those who need hope. Here there are two men, two ways, two destinies. In this psalm are two sharp distinctions and descriptions. One describes what the saint loves in verses 1 through 3, and then what the sinner sincerely and successfully manages to embrace in verses 4 through 6. Most of you are aware that psalms are Hebrew poems. They were meant to be sung. I love music. And there's only one thing that kept me from be, being a famous musician. I have no talent whatsoever. But a lot of people don't let that stand in their way. But there are a couple of Geraces who are extremely talented. My daughter-in-law, Carolyn, she has the voice of an angel. And I have a distant relative who was kind of a pop star in the 60s and the 70s. And if you have gray hair like mine, you might remember his song. He sang, precious and few are the moments we two can share. Quiet and blue like the sky, I'm hung over you. Yeah, you see why he was famous and I'm not. But if you love music, 
If you were trained as a musician, you're probably familiar with the famous middle C. In the scale, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, in the middle C, the music either flows up or it flows down. This psalm begins on a high note and then it ends on a very low note. The psalm will begin with the Hebrew word translated blessed. You can see it in the text. Blessed is the man. Here, that word in the original language carries with it the idea of plurality. It's, it's actually in the plural rather than the singular. We could translate this, oh, how abundant is the happiness. We could even say, oh, the blessedness of the man. We could even say the multiplied happiness of the man, the godly man, the godly woman. They don't experience the drip, drip drip of occasional blessing. The psalmist is talking about an expectation of joy and goodness and blessing. The godly man, the godly woman are promised multiplied benefits. There are blessings for those who walk with God. But the passage also issues a, a dire warning for those who, for whatever reason, say, you know what, I don't need God, I don't need Jesus, I don't need the Bible, I don't need all of this stuff, I don't believe in organized religion. So you believe in disorganized religion. What is it that you really do believe in? In poetic language, the psalmist is going to describe three aspects or three degrees of the person who departs from God, who for whatever reason, like in the New Testament, chooses to conform to this world. Remember, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the psalmist reminds us that we conform to this world when we accept its advice. We conform to this world when we become willing participants in its ways. We conform to this world when we adopt the world's most treacherous and fatal attitudes. And those are the attitudes of contempt, disdain, revulsion, for the revelation of God, or for the word of God, for the person who says, I don't care what the Bible says about creation. I don't care what the Bible says about sin. I don't care what the Bible says about salvation or reconciliation. So it's the law of the Lord in verse 2 that serves as a defense and an offense against the wicked who counsel the saint don't believe what God says. Don't believe what God has written in his word. Make sure that you check out and walk away and go your own way. And so the psalm ends with that word, perish. The psalmist is singing about two men, the saint and the sinner. The song is about two paths, the road to glory or the fool's highway, two destinies, 
One is with God and the other is absent the revelation of God, absent the word of God, without the God of the Bible. And so in verse 1, we see the saint's path. Look what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The psalmist begins not with the power of positive thinking, but rather with the powerful ability to say no. In other words, the person who's blessed begins, first of all, to be marked by not what they do, but what they choose not to do. In the popular culture, we're trained to say yes. If you're trained as a salesman, most of the time, people are trying to get you to say yes to their product, say yes to whatever it is that they're trying to sell you. <laughs> my, my father did all kinds of strange things. And for a period of, of his life, he was a used car salesman. And I would watch him figuring out ways to sell people cars. And I remember as a young man when I bought my first car, and the salesman came out and he said, what's it going to take for you to buy this car from me today? And I said, if you can solve world hunger and completely eliminate the threat of nuclear annihilation, I'll buy this car from you today. And he goes, no, no really. And I said, really, I, I'm not going to buy this car from you today. I want you to get used to the idea that I'm not going to buy the car from you. The psalmist sings the song of separation. I want you to think about this for a moment. The person who's blessed the person who is happy, the, this is the person who's making the conscious decision to ignore ungodly advice, ungodly guidance, ungodly counsel. And that is the world in which you live. If you watch television, if you go on the internet, if you even listen to the radio, but you can listen to my program, four to six. You're listening to people who are telling you that the Bible can't necessarily be trusted and that Jesus isn't really the Lord. They'll tell you that you are the product of unguided processes, that you come from nowhere and that's where you're going to go. And life is a point of pain and a meaningless existence. And you need to be able to say, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches I'm created in the image of God. The Bible says that human beings have sinned and that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that there's something wrong with us and that we need a savior. The person who's happy, the person who is blessed is the person who makes the conscious decision not just simply to ignore the counsel of the ungodly, but refuses to enter into the path of the sinners. What does it mean we don't stand in the path of sinners? Does it mean, well, I can't have an unbelieving friend or I can't be courteous to unbelievers? That's not what the passage is teaching. Most of you know that Jesus was a friend to sinners. 
But he doesn't sin. He doesn't sin in order to maintain friendship. He doesn't go along to get along. The psalmist is using poetic language to warn the saint not to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. We don't participate in the sinner's activities. We might think of this verse in a very simple but dramatic way. Number one, you have no reason to listen to ungodly counsel. Number two, you have no reason to linger with sinful people. Number three, you have no reason to sit or lounge in the seat of the scornful. The words counsel, way, and seat. Here, seat means assembly or dwelling. These serve as metaphors for the way we think, for the way we behave, for the way we belong. And so, what does that mean? The ungodly embraces the ungodly advice. The sinner has his or her own way. The ungodly and the sinner says, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. The sinner says to you, hey, what are you going to do? I'm going to go to church. What do you do at church? We worship the Lord. We sing songs. We learn the Bible. And they laugh. They laugh. Because they can't imagine. How could going to church, how could worshiping God, how could reading the Bible serve any practical benefit? And you need to be able to remind them about the emptiness and the darkness that once occupied your heart. The overwhelming guilt. The late nights where you couldn't go to sleep because you were wondering whether or not you were going to die and you didn't know where you were going to go. The scornful have their seat. We might think of this seat like a pillow, not like my pillow. You know, the guy who invented my pillow it took me 30 years to invent right on. It took me 30 years to invent this pillow. I'm not talking about that pillow. I'm, I'm talking about in the Hebrew custom, the pillow was the settled place. We might think of it as an overall attitude. The seated place is the settled place. The settled place is that place where you sit and you are for all, intern, all intents and purposes not prepared to move. So the ungodly, the ungodly is the person who says, look, I am a atheist, I'm an agnostic, I am this, I am that. I am not interested in your God and I'm not interested in Jesus and I'm not interested in the Bible. The seated place is the settled place. The scornful are those who hold biblical truth in revelation, in contempt or disdain. The scornful becomes a perfect picture of the person who laughs and mocks and ridicules your faith. The scornful is the person who when you even suggest the idea that, that the Bible might be God's word, when you suggest the idea that Jesus might be the Lord, when you suggest the idea that sinners are in need of a Savior, they laugh. 
And maybe some of you were a part of the scornful. The scornful have already made up their mind about creation, the fall, redemption and reconciliation. The famous patriot Thomas Paine was also a skeptic and a cynic and a critic and scornful. He was known for sitting in the seat of the scornful. He wrote, quote, as to the book called the Bible, it's blasphemy to call it the word of God. It's a book of lies and contradictions, a history of bad times and bad men. There are but a few good characters in the whole book, unquote. Have you already made up your mind about the Bible? Or are you still wondering whether or not it might be true. But note the contrast in verse 2, the saint's satisfaction with God's word, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. The saint's delight is in the law of the Lord, and when David is writing about the law, he's talking about the revelation of God. He's talking about what God has said about everything. He's talking about every word in the book of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He's talking about what God has said about creation and about the fall and about how human beings need a savior. And so the saint's delight is in the word of God. The contrast contrast is it is the word of God that serves as both guide and counselor. So we see that the saint has a different guide. The saint has a different counselor than the wicked. And so when we ask and answer the question, who is your guide? Who is speaking into your heart? Who is speaking into your circumstance? The sinner and the ungodly says, I am. It's my opinion that matters most. And you ask the question, well, tell me, what's your opinion of how you got here? Why is there something rather than nothing? How do you explain the circumstances of your life and your heart? The biblical meaning of the term meditation is different than the popular culture or Eastern mysticism or transcendental meditation. The ungodly, the ungodly, they empty their mind. The ungodly empty their mind and then fill their mind with nonsense. The godly person doesn't empty their mind, they fill their mind with God's word, with God's revelation, with God's promises. And so, the psalmist doesn't disengage the mind, but rather engages the mind with the word of God. My friend was very, a very famous philosopher and, and theologian. His name was Norm Geisler. And, and he was famous for saying, I, I'm willing to be open-minded, but I'm not willing to be empty-minded. In other words... He wants to fill his mind with truth rather than lies. Years ago, John Phillips offered this picture of this verse. He said, quote, we come into God's presence, our open Bible in hand. We say, speak, Lord, let thy servant heareth. Then we read the Bible in a methodical, meaningful, meditating way, seeking to understand and appropriate its truths. We ask the following questions. 
For instance, when pondering the sacred page, is there any sin here for me to avoid? Is there any promise for me to claim? Is there any victory to gain? Is there any blessing to enjoy? Is there any truth I've never seen before about Christ, about God, about the Holy Spirit, about man, about sin? What is the main thing I can learn here? That's meditation. The Bible is God's word. One old saint offered this advice. He said, when you meditate, imagine that Jesus Christ is about to talk to you about the most important thing in the world and then give him your complete attention. Imagine if you're sitting across from Jesus Christ and Jesus says, let's talk about your heart. Let's talk about what's happening in your life. Let's talk about the future. Isn't that interesting? The Bible is God's word. Dare I ask you that important question? Do you delight in God's word? Do you look for reasons to open it and draw near to it and be close to it? The idea in this psalm isn't simply reading God's word or even understanding God's word. I wouldn't normally do this, but I want you to look at me carefully and see that I'm old. I come by these gray hairs honestly. I have nine grandchildren. In just a few, not too many months in the future, I will have been a Christian for 55 and zero years. 50 years. I've read the Bible. I've taught the Bible. It's the only book, it's the only book, it's the only book I have ever read and taught that is inexhaustible. The more I read it, I wish I could tell you the more I understand, but the more I read it, I discover heights and depths that I never imagined. It's the one book that no matter how much I know and know how much I want to know, there's always something else to know. Spurgeon wrote, quote, nobody ever outgrows the scripture. The book widens and deepens with years. The idea isn't to simply read God's word or even to understand God's word. Then God knows I want you to read it. God knows I want you to understand it. But in reading it and understanding it, the psalmist is inviting you to actually obey it, reminding you that obedience brings blessing in verse 1 and disobedience brings ruin in verse 6. The contrast is stark. In verse 3, it talks about the righteous, the godly, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The saint, remember as we add, the, the, we connect the dots together, the saint who is separated from sin, 
the saint is not just separated from sin, but separated unto God. And then they're separated to God's word. They're away from sin. They're with the Lord. They're like a tree planted by rivers of water. The Bible uses water in a number of different ways. When water is used in the Bible of cleansing, or it, it speaks of the word of God. So when the, when the Bible speaks of water as a cleansing agent, it's speaking about the declaration of God. When water is used for drinking, it often means the spirit of God. Jesus talks about it in the New Testament when he talks about for the person who has a right relationship with him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, a, a picture and a type of the Holy Spirit. So what's happening in the text? Separation from sin and sinner. Reflection and meditation on God's word. Releases God's Holy Spirit into our lives for refreshment and maturation. If you've been in a situation where you've been far from God or distant from God or living in a dry season or a dry spell, you've come to church and you've said, Lord, Lord, I, I want to experience your presence. I want to know you and experience your presence. This is what it's talking about. There are several things that the psalmist is noting that I want to invite you to consider and maybe even think about incorporating into your own life. The first deals with prominence. You'll be like a tree. If you grew up in a desert like I grew up in, where there's just bushes and dirt, when you see a tree, it's something special. If you've ever gotten on I-70 and you start driving east and you're going through Kansas and you see fields of, of corn and, or sunflowers and you, you don't see a tree but one catches your attention, it's off in the distance, there's one lone tree standing all by itself, it's hard not to look at it. You go, oh look, there's a tree. And I, I know you're laughing, who could be so excited about a tree? but a tree sticks out when there are no other trees. And that's why you stick out. No pun intended, stick. You stick out. You're surrounded by dirt and bushes. And there you are with that smile. There you are with that joy. There you are with the knowledge that your sin has been forgiven and that your heart's been cleansed and that heaven is your future and you're a tree and your children sit under that tree and for some of you, your grandchildren sit under that tree. The next time you sit under a tree, the next time you sit under a tree with a picnic and you're enjoying the shade of the tree, I want you to ask yourself this question, or you can even talk to the tree. Who planted you? Who planted you that I get to sit under your shade and enjoy the benefits of your presence? Make no mistake about it, somebody planted that tree. 
And someone or something has planted in your heart a sense of joy and peace and the presence of hope. And now all of a sudden we begin to understand even better that there are the godly and the godless. There are those people who have hope and those who need hope. The second is permanence. He's like a tree planted. This is a tree that has roots and the roots go deep so that the branches go wide. You are not a person living a double life. A, the Bible says in the New Testament that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You're not that person who's constantly holding two different thoughts at exactly the same time. Is it true or not true? Is the Bible true or not true? Is God good or not good? Is God there or not there? Does he care or not care? And when you come to the settled realization that he's there and that he cares, things change. The grass withers, the flower fades. There are trees that are hundreds of years old. Some are thousands of years old. I take comfort with, from trees. I feel young next to a tree. The saint is said to be planted by rivers of living water. That speaks of position. John Phillips writes, quote, the droughts which bring bleakness and barrenness to others do not affect him. He has an unfailing source of life. And so the person who has an unfailing source of life when you are faced with the reality that someone that you love and that you care about has a diagnosis of cancer or a COVID situation or circumstances in their life where it looks dark and it looks bleak. I'm not saying that we don't have sympathy and support, but what I am saying is that when the clouds come and the darkness hovers and the rain begins to fall, we have an unchanging hope. Separate from sin. We separate to God and God's word. We're filled, continually filled with God's spirit. We bring forth fruit. That speaks of productivity. The tree brings forth fruit in its season. In California, where my grandparents lived, there was a time of planting and there was a plant time of harvesting. The tree brings forth its fruit in its season. And we know that some seasons are more fruitful than other seasons. There's times for rest. There's times for growth. There's times for harvest. But there seems to be a lasting legacy for the saint. Look what it says. His leaf also shall not wither. We live in Colorado. It's pretty easy to see in spring when the leaf comes forth and in the summer as the tree grows and in the fall when it turns radiant red, blush orange, vibrant yellow, and you see the leaves begin to fall from the tree, you realize, you realize that winter is on its way. But here in Colorado, we also have evergreens. We have certain trees that despite all of the seasons, they remain green. 
There is that pine needle that turns green and we are immune to the spiritual seasons. The next time you see an evergreen, go ahead and talk to it and say, hey, we have something in common. The seasons have no effect on you. And the spiritual seasons of cold and darkness need not have an effect on me. D.L. Moody put it this way. He said, all the Lord's trees are evergreen. And look what it says in the text. And whatsoever he does shall prosper. There are dry seasons. There are prosperous seasons. The saint prospers in ministry, in family, in business, in friendships. Why does the saint prosper? The saint is prospering because the saint lives disconnected from sin, in friendship with God, fellowship and service to the Lord. And don't confuse spirit-directed service with self-directed service. Sometimes we, like the ungodly, choose to leave God out of the decision-making process. But I'm going to encourage you that when you're talking about friendships and fellowship, when you're talking about business, when you're talking about church, when you're talking about whatever it is that you're talking about, and you ask this question of the Lord, you say, Lord, I want to be disconnected from the sinner. I don't want to take the advice of the ungodly. Listen carefully, because if you forget everything else I've said in this message, I hope you remember this one line. Listen to the man who listens to God. Listen to the woman who listens to God. Listen to the person who takes their counsel and instruction from the Lord. The saints' blessings are contrasted with the sinner's sad lot. Look at verse 4, the sinner's portion. The ungodly are not so, but they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. Who are the ungodly? How should we define that word, ungodly? I'm going to suggest to you that these are the men and women who have left God out of their life. They've left God out of the conversation. They've left God out of their thinking. They've left God out of their living. The ungodly aren't the people who never think about God or never read their Bible or never go to church. The, the ungodly are the people who, for whatever reason, are content to live most of their life separated from God and the people of God. I think it's a mistake if we think that sinners rarely or never think about God but the sinner doesn't merely forget God. The sinner has bought into the false idea, the wicked idea, the incredibly horrible, terrible, destructive idea that the sinful life is the good life. That the sinful life is the good life. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, 
He talks about Paul talking to Timothy, says, in the last days, perilous times will come where people will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure. Lovers of self is selfism. Lovers of money is materialism. Lovers of pleasure is hedonism. And when you love yourself and you love money and you love pleasure, the reality is you will disconnect from the God of the Bible. And righteousness won't be the thing that you love. The sinner has fallen prey to the incessant propaganda that church, reading your Bible, living a selfless life, that that's boring. You've had that conversation with people you know and love. Hey, what are you doing today? Going to church? What do you do at church? We worship the Lord. We read our Bible. We grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. And they laugh at you. They wonder, why would you waste your time when you could be making money, when you could be satisfying yourself? And what of the saint? The saint loves the word of God and the scriptures and the revelation of God. We listen to godly advice. We separate from sin. We're fruitful and helpful. We're prominent, permanent, prosperous. But look what the text says. The psalmist writes, the ungodly are not so. Gino Geraci's translation, the ungodly, not so much. The ungodly are contrasted with the righteous in verses 1 through 3. The righteous love God's word. The ungodly, not so much. The saint searches the scripture day and night, reflecting on its content, adding it to their lives, wanting it to be a part of their life, wanting to do it. The ungodly, not so much. The saint is rooted and grounded and prosperous. The ungodly, Not so much. The ungodly are manipulated, driven. The ungodly are not rooted. They're not grounded. They're not stable. And this is what's so important because the ungodly think that they're so wise and so smart and that they have the best ideas. But according to the psalmist, their chaff, which the wind drives away, he characterizes the ungodly like empty husks. There's no seed. There's no substance. They're driven by invisible winds. In other words, it's exactly Exactly like what you saw this morning. You got out. You saw the trees. You saw the leaves falling. You saw them blowing in every which direction. And you understood that there's a reason why the leaves blow in every single direction. Because there's no substance to them. I'm celebrating my anniversary this month with my wife. The wife of my youth. And when you're old, sometimes you just... Say bluntly, honey, what do you want? Tell me what you want. What is it that's going to make you happy? And my wife says, I want a leaf blower. And I go, why do you want a leaf blower? Because this way, 
when the leaves are there, I can just blow them and they'll go where I want them to go. And when I was preparing this message, I thought to myself, that's exactly the popular culture. They're like leaf blowers. Social media, the internet, the television, the radio, except my program, which you can listen to from four to six. You hit the button and the leaves start going in different directions. The people in the world, they claim that they're the ones with the substantive views and the weighty arguments, but their chaff and chaff by very definition has no weight, has no substance, and has no ability to produce life. They're sterile. If you take chaff and you plant it, it's an empty husk. Paul later said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. When he says, now if anyone builds on this foundation, he's talking about the foundation of life that comes when you receive Christ as your savior by faith. In other words, you know that you're a sinner. You receive Jesus as your savior. You want to walk with him and love him and be with him. And you begin to build on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones. These become metaphors of things that are going to last, things that matter. Your children and their children and eternity, this is what matters. Do the wind sometimes blow in helpful directions? I suppose so. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writes, quote, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The saint isn't to be characterized by immaturity and instability and gullibility. You're no longer a child unless you are a child. And if you are a child, it's okay. I'm not talking to you right now. If you're a child, be a child. It's okay to be a child. But if you're an adult, if you're a grown-up, the time for immaturity and instability and gullibility is over with. The saint should beware of fads and novelties and conspiracies and professional scoundrels who are Bible quacks, who claim that they're teaching the Bible when in fact they're not teaching the Bible and the most serious danger of all, deception. The ungodly man or woman thinks he or she may be the captain of their fate, that they're in charge of their future, but it's not true. Your unbelieving, ungodly friends are being driven by invisible forces of wickedness. And so it's okay for you to be a visible and tangible force of righteousness. It's okay for you to say, have you considered? Have you considered your life? Have you considered your heart? Have you considered your future? 
In verse 5, it says, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. What judgment do you think the psalmist is talking about? What judgment does he have in mind when he says the sinner will have no standing? At the judgment seat of God, the sinner doesn't have a leg to stand on. The sinner has no place among the saints. In the future, according to the book of Revelation, there is this scene that is painted in the book of Revelation of a great white throne judgment. And in this great white throne judgment, the wicked stand before the true and living God and the books are open and their life is shared. And what kind of a life is it? Is it a life separated from sin? Refusing to listen to the counsel of the ungodly? Is it a life separated from sin? Connected to God? Full of the spirit and joy? According to the Bible, the ungodly will be whisked away into an eternity. Everything will change. There's no place to stand. In the New Testament, he's built his house on sand. He has chosen the broad way instead of the narrow way. In verse 6, it says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Remember what I said. The song began on a high note. Blessed. And now it ends on this solemn Dark, difficult note. But I want you to see something. Look again at the text for the Lord knows. The Lord knows the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. The Lord knows. Even if you don't. Even if you can't see into the heart of your husband, your wife, your children, your neighbor even if you can't see into their soul and you can't see into the future, the Lord knows the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. And the Lord not only is aware of who the righteous is, but I want you to understand something, that the Lord approves and cares for the righteous. How do we know that? Because that word, for the Lord knows, the word know deserves at least a little investigation, a little reflection, just for a moment in the time that we have left. It means more than just to simply be informed about the facts of who's saved and who's not. It includes the wider meaning. The Lord knows it means to care about. It means to be concerned about. It doesn't just mean to care about or to be concerned about. It means to care in such a way and be concerned in such a way that he can do something about it. He knows who belongs to him. When Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they listen to me. I'm going to even go one step further. I think that the word know here could mean identification and even ownership. The Lord knows and owns the way of the righteous. Your future belongs to him. Your heart, your life, your future, they belong to him. 
the Lord does not approve of the unrighteous. What's sad about this situation is the unrighteous crave your approval. The unrighteous The unrighteous want you to be happy with their unrighteousness. They want you to be happy that they're living in rebellion and disobedience against God. The unrighteous crave God's approval and they crave your approval, but God doesn't approve of the unrighteous. And the ungodly aren't simply those who do wicked and sinful things. The ungodly are those who have stubbornly and persistently refused to bow the knee. They've refused to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even though Paul said that there is going to come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, but the unrighteous on this side of eternity says, I won't do it. I don't believe in your God and I won't accept your Bible and I won't accept your Christ. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. In the New Testament, that word perish can have, well, in the Old Testament, it means a number of different things. There's nuanced meanings based on context. In this case, the psalmist seems to mean that the path of the sinner leads to emptiness and ruin. When it says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish, that means it's going to lead to emptiness. It's going to lead to ruin. And in the New Testament, the thought is captured in Christianity's most famous verse, for God so loved the world in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish won't come to ruin, won't be thwarted. The word elsewhere is used to describe perish, a loss of hope, the frustration over plans that were never realized. And you're living in a world, you're living in a world with people in the world who are disconnecting from hope. And for some of these people, you're their only lifeline and connection to hope. And you may have grown ashamed or tired of saying, there's hope in Jesus. God loves you. Jesus loves you. There's hope for you. The Bible teaches an ultimate parting of the ways between the Savior and the unrepentant sinner. And so, which one are you? Saint? Sinner? Do you walk in the counsel of the ungodly? Do you stand in the way of sinners? Are you occupying the seat of the scoffer? Or do you delight in God's word? Do you read it? Do you reflect on it? Do you desperately want to know the purpose of it and how it applies to your life? 
I wrote myself a note. Scattered with the sinners, or gathered with the saints, secure and safe the righteous, free from sin's restraints. Are you a part of the people? Disconnected from sin, connected to God, filled with the Spirit, producing fruit. Are you a tree for your children and their children? God knows who the godly are and the ungodly, even if you don't. Wouldn't you like to know? Let me pray for you, Heavenly Father. I pray for that person who's so deeply conflicted and divided in their heart. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you love them and care for them and that your desire is to forgive them and restore them. Lord, I pray that as they consider the cross of Calvary, what Jesus has done by dying for sin, that they would receive Christ. That if they can answer this simple question, are you a sinner? And if the answer is yes, if they can answer the simple question, would you like to be forgiven? And if the answer is yes, I pray that they would trust Jesus, separate from sin, attach themselves to the invitation that God has given in Christ to become a new creation and to walk into a future of blessedness, of joy, and certainty about heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for having me. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223 or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.